The Football Show on Off The Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership and much more. Live on Sky Sports. I'm prepared to end it my can. Well, do it then. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should it be an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Now then, you're very welcome along. So we have got much to discuss. Tony Evans of the London Independent is going to join us later on in the show. In the meantime, very happy to bring in former Republic of Ireland striker David Connolly. Dave, great to have you on. Good evening. How are you doing? Yeah, very well. Could I start with Jake Daniels, who this evening became the UK's first active male professional footballer to come out as gay since Justin Fashionu back in... 1990, made his senior debut for Blackpool earlier this month. He is given an interview which was months in the making, it seems, said he was aware of his sexuality since he was six years of age, kept it a secret as he pursued his dream of a career in football. He said, it's been a crazy year. I'm 17. I've signed a professional contract. I've scored 30 goals this season and I've just made my first team debut in the championship coming off the bench against Peterborough. And now I've decided to come out. Everything has happened all at once but it feels right to do so. We wish him well. Very brave. I suppose the bravery is in that he's stepping into uh, the unknown. You would uh, presume and hope in the main that this will be well received across the board. Be pretty confident yeah. of that? <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you could say probably football's been a bit behind the times in regards to this, but but um, I think he's going to be really well supported and um you know, there's probably other people, you know, like he mentioned Tom Daly, for example, and other people from different sports, um, different athletes. But yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he'll be um, really well supported. And you know what, for him, it seems like it's the right thing because he's, he's, uh, as he's been saying, you know, he's maybe hasn't quite been living the life that he wanted to, but, but he can now. And, um, you know, so uh, yeah, we wish him the, you know, the very best in his career because he's he's as he's mentioned he's a youngster he's just starting out <clears throat> he's had a great season and uh, this will, I'm sure will help him um, you know just be himself and go and play his football. Just to give people a sense of some of the uh, the, the way it was handled, for instance, uh, Will Cowell, he's the Blackpool Football Club safeguarding officer. He was speaking to Sky Sports News. Just have a listen. Well, prior to Christmas, uh, there was a, a couple of month period where he was. He's really struggling. Um, we wanted to help him. We, we couldn't help him because we couldn't put a finger on what we, what the issue was. He was still competing at a, a good standard. He was playing week in, week out really well. However, we found after Christmas and, and um, after he's come out as being gay, he's, his performances have just gone through the roof. He's, he's excelled and, and him, uh, Jake himself commented to me that it's a massive relief that he's not had to lie and you know he's not having to lie he's got a an outlet where he can talk to myself and some of the other staff members and, and he's felt like that's taken a huge weight off him and, and he's able to express himself on the pitch I'm sure it has taken a huge weight off him so that's Will Cowell from Blackpool uh, for instance Gary Neville's been speaking about it this evening as well here was his reaction what he's just done tonight takes incredible courage we've both lived in a dressing room for many many years and that would seem like the unthinkable um, to basically announce that you are gay into a change room. I can imagine how difficult that has been. I can't imagine how difficult that's been, really. Um, so all I would say is that it's a, it's a day of great importance for, obviously, Jake and his family, but also, I think, for English football, and it'll go down in history. You know, I was on the PFA Management Committee 
probably 15, 20 years ago now, whereby this was you know, a major talking point, a major issue that was discussed at sort of management committee meetings about the fact that basically we didn't have a player comfortable enough to be able to, you know, come out and, and, and say that they were gay. And it was, a, it was something that, you know, how do we deal with this? How do we address this issue? The game's not dealt with this issue well at all. I think it's just about getting um, good at dealing with the issue from a fan's perspective. Obviously, we met the LGBTQ community at um, Southampton earlier on in the year, didn't we? That sort of, if you like, are, are doing great work. Um, and we know that now it's sort of, if you like, something that's really acceptable from a, from a fan point of view, but it's not yet got into the dressing room because that dressing room can be an evil place, a dressing room. It really can, you know, and you think about coming through the initiation ceremonies that you go through and the sort of the fact that the, the peer pressure and the sort of vulnerability that you have. You're talking about a 16-year-old just coming out of school, going into a professional football club of ego-driven, um, dominant male characters and... The way in which Jake spoke was absolutely incredible in any circumstance, by the way. To see any 17-year-old speak like that on the television is, is absolutely incredible. But to see them speak about this particular subject, or see him speak about this particular subject, um, it, it absolutely wonderful what we've just witnessed, really. I and mean, we've just seen that interview come through 20 minutes ago, and I was, in, I'd say, absolutely astonished at how mature and composed he was all the way through it. So that's some of the reaction this evening. I suppose, David... We can be queasy in some respects talking about this because I think all of us know and love gay people in our lives and it's of little or no importance to us, their sexuality. In fact, it's generally one of the most boring things about them. Uh, so it can feel very odd to talk about this in such hushed tones and like such a big deal. But let's recognise for a moment how badly the world of male sport has lagged behind society in this issue and football in particular. I suppose Gary Neville raised two interesting aspects there, the dressing room and then the reaction in the stadiums. Let's talk dressing room for a moment. I suspect the dressing room environment that you grew up in and that you would have played in. Uh, you recognise what Neville's talking about there. And I suspect, for instance, uh, homophobic jokes and language was just uh, par for the course and it was just the culture. And uh, one presumes that has uh, changed over time, maybe not entirely, to be fair, but has changed over time. Did you, for instance, uh, know of any players who were gay and just not openly gay to the public in your time? No, <clears throat> I didn't, to be honest. But... Um you know, the dressing rooms that I shared, I don't know, obviously, you know, Gary Neville had his particular dressing room and, and obviously a, uh, a dressing room that was, I guess, at times ruthless. You, you, know, you speak about the initiation ceremonies and it can take a strong character to, um, you know, I remember, you know, normally you would sing a song, for example, mm. you know, and you'd have to stand on a chair. I wasn't, I wasn't Jake's age, but I was probably a lot older, but rightly or wrongly I didn't want to do it you know so I didn't do it um now that didn't go down very well with all the other players because that was part of the initiation but I just wasn't comfortable doing it look it's not a big my point being you have these rituals which were slowly dying out anyway and I felt it was an old ritual that really was unnecessary part of the banto of of dressing which previously I did but I think I got to an age I was old enough and comfortable enough to say you know what I don't want to do it. Don't worry. Just uh, get get one of the youngsters, maybe if they're fine doing it. Uh, I'm not. You can't compare it. But my point being that it's kind of those initiation sorts of types of things have kind of died out a little bit. And I think the times have moved on. So I think for Jake, it's it's great um, that he's in a position such a young age, and he'll be really well supported by his football club, by mm. the PFA. 
um, you know, by his family. I think he, he spoke about he scored four goals, you know, the sort of the day after in a youth game. Um, and, um, you know, I'm sure you know, we're not going to say it's going to be the start of lots of other football players, which maybe you might be wondering, is this the start of maybe others that, mm. that, that, that might now um, make themselves, you know, known as, as, as gay um, and feel confident to do so. But it's terrific for someone so young to yeah. do that. No, it sure is and speaks to his character. So <laughs> let's presume the dressing room is very important and I suspect it will be. What about then fans where hostility is still very much part of the culture and if you can as a group of fans uh, seize on any quote unquote weakness or, or area which might be um, perceived rightly or wrongly as worthy of derision uh, you do that because that's what fans uh, do uh, it's hard to know how optimistic to well, be on this front given that yeah. things like racism uh, still occurs within grounds uh, so it's it's hard to imagine that those same morons will somehow think well yeah. I'm, I'm okay to be racist but when it comes to someone's sexuality I wouldn't yeah. dream of saying the wrong thing so that's the only slight worry for him I suppose Yeah the, 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 obviously the line between you know racism being homophobic etc it's hard to uh, at times wonder where that line will 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 ever be and um, will it always be there will will you get that element at grounds i mean i think we saw it as a, allegedly at everton at the weekend mm. now you know brentford won um you know maybe that that might not have happened if everton had won i don't i don't know but football and the tribal nature of it can bring out the best and the worst of people mm. you know you know that you're going to you go see the games, you know, whatever sport it is, people enter the stadium as one sort of person and while they're in it for 90 minutes or whatever, they, they can often turn to a different type, you know. Mm. So it does it does do that to you. Look, I think in, in the main, um, I think this will be, uh, I think it'll be, you know, really well received mm. in the stadiums, to be honest. But you, there will always be maybe a, a, a tiny minority that may, mm. that may, that may, that may not be the case. But I, I doubt it. I think, I, I think by and large, it will be really supportive for Jake. Yeah, I tend to agree, which is hopefully that is the case. To the weekend's football, then we might start with the FA Cup. Extraordinary game, extraordinary emotion, an extraordinary penalty shootout. And in the end, it's Liverpool just... They were probably the better team for a large portion of that game. Yeah. I have to say, I've just got to tell you, though, that Newcastle have taken the lead Ooh. against Arsenal. So it looked like it might have been an own goal because you've got one idea on this, uh, as we know, because we're always talking on off the ball, wondering about the top four, who's going to get it. You know, obviously Tottenham won, put Arsenal under a bit of pressure. Yeah, and, uh, Ben White on goal. And Ben White's just got an own goal. So um, really interesting the tide has turned there. But the cup final was, um, look, it was the second time I'd been there because I was there for the League Cup final. And um, this wasn't quite as exciting. Um, ironically, when it went to penalties, you know, I said to my co-commentator, just judging on the body language, the time of the season, the players looked kind of, and the game was as if, they were towards the end of a long season and it was that sort of game. And I said, this won't be 11-10 on penalties. They, they, this won't. You could tell the players that, you know, they were spent, a lot of them. And um, often when that's the case, I think that your technique goes, um, you know, you can start making the wrong decision, you change your mind, etc. And 
look, Liverpool won it. It could have gone either way in the end. And, and um, it wasn't a classic by any means, but there was plenty of opportunities within normal time to get goals. And there was, it was probably due to, uh, you know, some below par finishing, I guess. Mm. You don't need me to remind you, you've taken penalties uh, under a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. So what does it do to you? You would be a striker. You'd fancy your chances with a penalty, I would think, nine times out of ten. And yet it's entirely different doing it, for instance, yeah, for the Republic of is. Ireland under chronic pressure. So that that's also, you know, you, you've got to attach that cloud hanging over what they're trying to do at Wembley. Yeah, because, you know, obviously to, to you know, um, to my cost, you know, it's it still hurts. But I guess... Um, when I was looking at both teams when they were, you know, getting their instructions, mm. you had Tuchel in the middle reminding me of Mick McCarthy. He seemed to be asking the players who wants one because it's all right, it's all well and good saying I'm planning to prepare to take a penalty. Yeah. But you don't know the stage of the game, how that player's played, how they're feeling, who's still on the pitch, who would take one, who's been, who's come off, and suddenly your penalty taking order, as well practiced and rehearsed as you want it to be is affected somewhat. Now, I know Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp have used a, a company to, to try and improve upon their penalty taking. And I, I, think that's, I think that's a really good idea because, you know, they have had success and it is a fine margin. But, but you, you just wonder because, you know, your brain can tell you to do things, you know, put it in the same place as we did in training yesterday and then suddenly the pressure's on, two people have missed before you. And you've seen a goalkeeper dive a certain way and you change your mind. That kind of happened with me. And and I think, it, yeah, it's such a hard skill to perfect. But I think it's one with, with, with lots and lots and lots of practice and research and, 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 and on the day, you can maybe, maybe try and think of every possible eventuality. That's what you're trying to do as a football manager and a player. Mm. You know, the goalkeeper position, you know, what end you're kicking to, you know, the ball on the spot you know, you, how you feel if you've still got enough energy in your legs and you still have the clarity in your mind, that all plays with you and especially in such a high-pressured situation. I'll bet. And when Mick McCarthy was going around asking who wants a penalty, were you absolutely sure you did? Well, I just, I, um, from what I recall, you know, I said, yeah, I'll have, I'll have one. I felt it was, I felt it was a kind of responsibility, but whether that was confidence, not, it wasn't confidence stroke misplaced confidence. I just felt, I'm someone who has taken penalties before, you know, if I don't say I'm going to take one, then, you know, what, what message does that sound? You know, what does that send out? Plus I felt it was my duty, you know, but not my duty, but I, you know, that's my, that's what I'm out there to do. Right. But anyway, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but um, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a bad, it's a, it's not a nice way to lose. Hmm. Um, But to be honest, it, it, it wasn't the greatest of cup finals. And also, do you know what the kickoff time, I thought it was a terrible kickoff time. If I was a player, I would have hated it. You know, it's not it's not twelve o'clock where you get up, have breakfast, you you go and play pretty quick. It's not three o'clock tradition. You know, you have your breakfast, lunch, normal time. It's not in the evening where you know you break up the afternoon. It was at the worst time. Hmm. You know, right towards the the late afternoon, and I, I don't know what fans felt because I was coming out after that. You know, the Liverpool fans probably they were probably well happy anyway, hmm. regardless. But I I just. I, I think it just the time of year it's always late in the season but because there's still so much at stake in the league and the volume of games that these teams have played and the time and everything it just felt like it was almost a game too far for some of these you know yeah. like I think it's look it, 
it, it, Liverpool will, it will help them in the Champions League, that's for sure. Um, but um, I, I, I don't know. I just came away from it thinking, yeah, maybe it could it could have been a better occasion in the end. I think lots of observers have talked of a tiredness in Liverpool of late, and we can even see that there is a heightened aspect to Jurgen Klopp's rotation at the moment so it suggests that the word from the SNC coaches is talking about various players in the red zone I mean it's maybe not a shock that Salah has been rested a touch late they obviously yeah. we, we can't rest Salah for an FA Cup final and he duly gets injured so you, you suspect yeah. you suspect quite a few Liverpool players you'd love to be on the inside and hearing the SNC advice but you suspect the advice is that quite a few are uh, right on the precipice of an injury and that's something that yeah. they're juggling with as are City I suppose in their defence as well they, I mean the, the, the really awful thing for Liverpool and Klopp was bemoaning this this afternoon in his press conference is 120 minutes penalties the emotion regroup I mean they're in St Mary's tomorrow yeah that's right yeah and it's a tough it's um, you know it is a, it's a tough run now with, with Salah's an interesting one right because I think he came back from Afghan. He had four games extra time. Mm. He he had already, and I'd, I'd, I'd had this and said it on off the ball before. He he was already, he had already played something like the most fourteenth most minutes in world football, which you kind of expect, right? But nonetheless, I think this was their sixtieth game, and you just wonder. He tried to rest him, whether he was feeling something, and it was a little bit too late. But you know, Mane was also at Afghan. And, you know, he hasn't looked back of late. He's been brilliant down through the middle. So it's really difficult to get that that balance right. And I think he was always going to start the cup final. Um, it was it was a shame they went on, off injured. But, you know, Van Dijk went off as well. And I, th- and I guess at this stage of the season, it's something that now they've got that depth in Liverpool, right? They could overcome it. Probably two seasons ago, they might not. I mean, he could afford to leave Origi on the bench. Normally, when he's in trouble, he calls for Origi. Yeah. He didn't need to because he's got, you know, Jota. He brought Firmino on. You know, he does have the strength and depth. What will be interesting, Will, is, is you know, kind of like, does do they give Salah this money, you know, that he wants and maybe Mane? Um, because I, I still don't think, I still think they are two top, top players and you wouldn't want to lose them, especially with City getting Erling Haaland. But, you know, that's something else for another day. But I think the, the time to sign these players is now when you've got trophies in the cabinet, you know, and and maybe give them close to what they want because you don't want to lose them. You do not want to lose these two players and, and think, right, we might win the treble, we might win the quadruple. I don't think they will, but just say, get all these trophies in. And you've got two of your best players who've got a year on their deals who could be going out the door. I think now's the time to sign these up. Don't waste any time. Get, get, them, get them signed, sealed and delivered. That's what I would be thinking. Mm. Man City 2, West Ham 2 just uh, gives the final day of the season an extra touch of possibility, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, what was so striking about the West Ham goals, the two Bowen goals, really good finishes and all the rest, but like they weren't a case of West Ham cutting Man City open like they were fairly direct clip a ball over the top well-timed run but just clip a ball over the top and suddenly City looked very vulnerable and they do have their yeah. own defensive crisis injury crisis at the moment and again that's another kind of chink of light in there uh, for uh, the final day of the season but that yeah. jumped out to me in, in terms of the bone goals it, it, it wasn't yeah, like yeah. master class of football here these are, no. these would be goals you would think oh god how are we conceding these yeah. from, from these moments yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, say he's got Fernandini at the back, terrific player. Yeah. We, we know that. But we saw in the Champions League when he was up against Vinicius that 
you know, and he's leaving in the summer and his age and everything. You know, he, he had that bad back pass he gave away to Antonio, who probably should have scored. That would have made it 3-1, yeah. yeah. I think, then. So, you know, they, 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 they have that vulnerability on occasions when maybe, you know, they've, they've, they've got certain players in certain positions, City. But, um, you know, West Ham, brilliant for West Ham. You know, and it looked like it was all set up for Liverpool at 2-0 up. And then, you know, they get the deflected strike and they, they get back in the game. And, you know, 2-2 could have been 3-2 to them in the end. But I, I think that would have been a bit unfair on West Ham, who I thought was superb. Mm. And as you say, you know, defended deep. They've got players now to play on the counter. They never used to have players like that. They never used to have the pace to hurt teams in behind. You know, they never used to. All the intensity and energy, but they've got them now. So, no, they, they were really good. Mark Noble made his last appearance at home for the club 18 years in the first team it is yes yeah made yeah. his debut when I was there is that right he made his debut yeah that's wow. right he made his debut he was a, a young pro coming through and um, you know he's he's been a terrific seven and you know what I think he's used him really well this season you know because yeah. obviously Dec- Declan's the main man but he's given him games in Europe he's given him time to come off the bench and impact games you know he hasn't he hasn't dismissed him or or, you know, kind of giving him game, being tokenism with his minutes. Mm. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. You know, you know, he knows Declan Rice is is ahead of him. Declan Rice is where he was eighteen years ago. Mm. You know, and he's. I think David Moyes showed his man management there just to say, look, no, you're not going to play, but you're going to be so important for us on and off the pitch. You'll get your minutes, but obviously you won't be ahead of Declan. And for your last season, he accepted that and. Uh, um, you know, he goes out on a real high. I was curious for your thoughts. I mean, you can only have one career and uh, I'm sure the grass is always greener and, and, and I, well, I suspect not in Mark Noble's case. Uh, he doesn't think, God, if I'd moved around a bit more, uh, how might my career have been different? But if I look at your career, you jump around a lot. Like it's two, three years move, maybe a year here move, two, three years move, two years move kind of a thing. And Noble's been there for 18 years, just the one club. Uh, like, do you kind of think, geez, if I if I got a ten year stint at a club and really bedded into a place, it would have been better for my no, career, I, or, or like the moves I had to happen for different reasons? And, and it's di- yeah, it's di- I think it's different because Mark obviously came through that that academy, mm. you know, and came through at West Ham, and it was a pretty state. It's been a pretty stable environment, West Ham, for um, you know, for for him coming through, and and I guess it doesn't happen very often, right? There's probably him, I don't know, big name players, Guess gigs, that the class of 92 might be the last generation. Class of 92, really. yeah. yeah, that's kind of it. That, now, the, the, the other parallel will be Declan Rice. But see, Declan Rice didn't come through at West Ham. You know, he came through at Chelsea and was released and then was picked up by West Ham. So I guess that loyalty that maybe Mark had from coming through there from a kid and once you're there five, six, seven seasons, eight seasons, you keep, you know, and you're part of the fabric of that football club through good and bad. And you've been there from when you're very, very young. Mm. He had that. You know, Declan hasn't had that. So I doubt Declan will be there for 18 years. But, Do you know what I mean? Because no, he totally. doesn't have that same it's tie. Not, not in his blood. Yeah. But I would have thought even yeah. just from, say, a Putting aside loyalty, which let's be honest is a meaningless concept in football, professional football, it's not it's not a real thing. Uh, if you had stayed put at a club, would that have benefited you? Because it would strike me there's a constant bit like a new manager. 
you move on, you've got to settle in, get to know everyone, develop understanding. And it's almost like the first few months of each season where you move club is a betting in period as opposed to being stable. Do you think that would have benefited you? Um, I don't know, but the, the point of no loyalty in football, I think at times, I think there is loyalty in football. Right. I think there is. There are, on occasion, there are times. You know, on occasion, you might get a player that does have a real connection to the football club and the club might stick by them more so than they would other players because of that. You know, it does exist, it, mm. but very rarely. Very rarely. That's but, my point almost, yeah. But it does, but it does. I am sure there are other players, you know, your gigs and, and other players who could have moved on. Some could have stayed, you know, some of those class of 92 maybe could have eked out another year at Man United. And I think they might have said, look, we'll give her another year, mm. but maybe you'll have the Mark Noble role. You won't play. And they were like, well, okay, maybe Phil Neville, whatever. I'll go and play somewhere else. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. So, but I think if they'd have maybe wanted to stay, they might have, they might have stayed, you know, if they were willing to accept that. You know, so I think I think it, it can be there, the loyalty. You know, it's not all, um, I guess, it, it's it's not always about, you know, the chasing the next big buck. And I think Mark was quite shrewd, not shrewd, but I think Mark Noble knew that, you know, I could make a, I could become a legend here and, you know, you risk that for something else. Mm. I think it's different when you're a journeyman centre forward and, you know, <laughs> there's so many different changes at football clubs level and, you know, relegation or different managers coming, different owners, yeah. and, uh, you know, different ways of playing. And, you know, it, it's it's a lot different. Who's getting relegated, David? Uh, that, that's a great question. Um, it's, it's oh, I, I, I have a bad feeling for, I have a bad feeling for, for Leeds, but, uh, you know, in some ways, I mean, I've got tickets to this game against Brentford at the weekend. Mm. I don't think I'm going, but I think my kids will be going because it's only down the road. But I've, I've got, I've got a feeling that I, I just, I hope it's not the case because not because I'm a Leeds fan or anything like that. But obviously, they've added to the Premier League so much. I think they really need to get something against Villa, uh, uh, Burnley do. Mm. And if if they do, which I think they might, then I think it puts it the pressure back on Leeds. And if you look at Brentford of late. They're in really good form. And I think it's going to be hard to get something there for Leeds. So um, I, I think it's a straight shootout between Burnley and Leeds. And I've just got a sneaking suspicion based on how Leeds are playing at the minute. It might be Leeds. OK, well, I guess we'll find out very soon. David Connolly, much appreciated. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Take care. David Connolly with us here on Off The Ball. Our football show coverage brought to you by Sky. You can watch Southampton-Liverpool tomorrow night live only on Sky Sports. Latest in the game at St James's, it is still Spurs very happy with Newcastle 1, Arsenal 0. 74 minutes on the clock is where we are. A short break, Tony Evans, always a really good guest, going to join us next. Probably did hate mail. I would thought it was hate at the time because these guys are trying to take away our dreams. The Football Pod live Thursday, June 2nd in Castle Bar. Check out otbsports.com forward slash events and get your tickets now. Now you're very welcome back. Joe Malloy with you this evening. Very happy to say Tony Evans from The Independent is with us. Hi, Tony. Hey, chaps. How are you? Yeah, very well. few things to chat to you about. Certainly for Jake Daniels, a landmark day in his life. And I suppose in many respects for English football as well, if not necessarily uh, society. So 17 years of age, he is the UK's first active male professional footballer to come out as gay since Justin Fashion, who did back in 1990. Just to give people a sense of Daniels, here's some of his interview from earlier on. You've made the decision 
to come out. Why is now the right time? It's been such a long time of lying um, and I've just processed and processed every day of just about how I want to do it, when I want to do it and I think now is just the right time to do it. You know, I feel like I'm ready to tell people about my story. I want people to know the real me and lying all the time just isn't what I've wanted to do and it has been a struggle but now I just do feel like I'm ready to be myself, be free and just be confident with it all. Talk us through your journey. When did you realise you were gay and what impact has that had on your football? Can't really put a date on it, but I'd say maybe five or six, you know, it has been quite a while. At that age, you don't really think of football and being gay doesn't mix. Um, so all the way through my life, I was like, yeah, it's fine. You'll get a girlfriend when you're older and you'll change and it'll be fine. And then as you do get older, you realise you just can't and it's just something that you won't be able to do. So I've had girlfriends in the past to try and make all my mates think that I'm straight and it was just a massive cover-up. So it has been a struggle. And then in school, everyone always used to ask me, are you sure you're not gay? And it was like, no, I'm not, because I wasn't ready, but just don't want to lie anymore. Did you feel as though you might need to hide who you are to become a professional footballer? Yeah, I think so, obviously, because there's no one out. I felt like I do need to hide it and wait until I've retired to maybe come out. But I just knew that that was just such a long time of just lying and not being able to have what I want. There we are, Jake Daniels speaking today. Uh, Tony, to be commended, 17 years of age. It's a brave, brave move. And, um, you know, you've got to give them credit for it. Um, I, I think the problem won't be so much in the dressing room, but it'll be in the stands of the stadiums that he plays at. Uh, I mean, you know, over the years, there's been plenty of professional footballers who have been a, a gay but haven't come out and just, you know, go on with their lives and kept it quiet. Most of the time, the team makes knew about it and accepted it. You know, there, there, there are loads of stories I could tell you about that. But it's it's a bit different coming out publicly and being so young. And one agent said to me, probably a decade ago, he said, you know what I'd really like? He said, I'd really like to have the first gay, high-profile professional footballer. He said, like, the endorsements would be massive. The, 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 the key to that, though, was high profile. And at the level that, you know, we're talking about, I don't think it'll be quite as easy. How do you mean? Well, you know, if he was a superstar, yeah. come out as gay, then I'm, I'm sure he'd be on every television advert and every, you know, sort of magazine article. But, you know, when you're at this level at 17, you're not the superstar. You're just, uh, you know, you're foot soldier in the game. And so he's less an attractive prospect in terms of um, as a use as a marketing vehicle. Well, I suppose that's a, a side issue. I, I suspect from Jake Daniels' point of view, what he wants is to be a foot soldier. Wouldn't that be actually an amazing thing? And, and in some respects, I think it would be preferable to the first gay footballer being othered by being a superstar and in all the campaigns and somehow pointed to as as different and that's like in some kind of grim agent way like a nice selling point to the corporates I, I think actually if we could leapfrog, leapfrog that stage and just get to Jake Daniels being oh he's just Jake Daniels foot soldier uh, that would be entirely preferable for me yeah, I mean, you know, what we need is the normalisation of people's yes. sexuality. You know, it's a, a, and the truth is, um, which no one wants to accept, especially the, the more bigoted types, is sexuality is malleable throughout your life. 
you know, the, uh, at different times, you can fall in love or fall for different people of different sexes. You know, it, it, I, you know, I'm, I'm in my sixties. It took me a long time to learn that, and and to see that it's completely and utterly normal. And you know, when you live in a metropolitan centre, I live in London. You see, it, it, it is it is completely normalised. Um, after the game on uh, the cup final on Saturday, I saw two girls in Liverpool shirts walking along, holding hands, and I didn't think. Oh, there's a gay couple. It's just, oh, two happy Liverpool fans yeah. didn't think twice about it. But isn't, isn't, need- isn't that the point with football in that it lags so far behind society? This, this is, this is and, and, and I mentioned it with a previous guest, David Connolly, who was on with us. This is not a story in any other sphere of life almost. It's it's a complete non-story and yet in football it's a talking point and that's to football's shame. Uh, presumably in the stands, presumably in the stands and, and you know, the Justin Fashnew Example is, I suspect, was such a terrifying one for any footballer who was uh, keeping his secret, and, and the treatment that Fashnu received was terrifying. Which is why maybe we're still here all these years later. I, I, I presume we are a world away from that treatment in the stands in 2022. Uh, well, sadly, I don't think it's a world away. I think it's it's far too close to how it was, you know, back in the eighties to for us to be complacent about um, on all levels. You know, people say, "Oh, things have got better." They say, "Oh, you know, it's less racist racist than it was, less homophobic than it was." Well, you know what? Less isn't good enough. Mm. You know, we we need to be we need to be much more inclusive about this thing. And I think there will still be the. You know, I mean, you know, you get people still singing to Brighton. You know, we can see holding hands, Brighton fans. We get, we get the Chelsea rent boy chants. There's still that seam of, you know, sort of a vocaliness, of bigotry yes. that runs the game. I mean, I always say football is still the biggest expression of working class culture in Britain, and that's a double sided coin. It also reflects the uglier side mm. of the culture, and and I think we'll 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 see this. And and I mean, I think the point I'm making is that if he was a superstar, people often give give you know give superstars a pass and kind of ride over the parts of the personality or the character that otherwise they would be uncomfortable with. And I think this 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 young man is not in that situation where no one's going to give him a free ride. The most comfortable he'll be, I'm sure, is in the dressing room because I can't see his teammates having a problem with it. Mm. Well, I hope you're wrong. I hope somehow, on, on the fans that is, I hope somehow, because he spoke so well and uh, came across as you know very likeable and, and very open in a really lovely way and he's just 17, you would just hope, you would just hope there's an element of cop on with this, but... Who knows? I, when people say, well, there'll always be a minority, I suppose the, the question in this instance is going to be how big is the minority? Will it be big enough to be uh, heard chanting? Uh, you know, those chants you mentioned about teams. And I, so I guess the difference is the chants aimed at Chelsea fans or Brighton fans at large. You know, that, that's very much just part of the war in the stands. Whereas for hundreds, if not thousands of fans to rain down on a 17-year-old would be just so shameful. I'd be... I wouldn't be shocked because nothing would shock you, but I'd be very horrified. Yeah, well, I, I think we've regressed a long, long way in the past two years. Right. I mean, we've seen, for example, with um, you know the, the 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 spewing out of invective over Hillsborough that's come a, a, along, you know, and then um, you know we've seen the behaviour of certain groups of fans uh, over that, you know, and I, I think I think 
if I if I was advising them, I'd say stay away from social media. Mm. You know that that's for sure. Um, we, we've seen the very very ugly characteristics of British society have been you know the, the skin's been pulled back on it in the past five years, and this place is getting worse and worse. And what do you, uh, what what do you put that down to, Tony? Oh, I think um, <laughs> well. I, Obviously, the economy's a problem, but, you know, we've had populist politicians who have, you know, who have used people like immigrants and, at times, uh, uh, the gay community as punchbags to, 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 to signal to their most bigoted audience that, you know, their, their right-wing views. Yeah. And certainly, there's a culture war going on. We all know there's a culture war going on. And... I hope he doesn't get caught up and become a victim of that culture war. You know, it's very striking with the other two things I wanted to bring up with you. Uh, football and society is intersecting here in uh, various, very glaring ways. So, for instance, just on this point uh, about Jake Daniels, uh, Newcastle. Uh, I don't know if this leaked jersey is a kite flying exercise or if it's full steam ahead or if it's quote unquote fake news but people would have seen in the last few days a supposedly a leaked picture of Newcastle's new away kit which effectively is the Saudi Arabian jersey it, you know jumped out to everybody and so for instance Amnesty International their uh, head of campaigns was talking about this situation and said this is almost one of the most blatant examples of sports washing that they could think of like I, my word's not his but it's almost hilarious that they would think that this would be a good idea so uh, he was making the point Felix Jenkins he said despite all their assurances of a separation between the Saudi owners and the club this seems like clear evidence of the regime using Newcastle to portray a positive image and he goes on to say everyone from uh, fans to champions need to resist being part of Saudi Arabia's propaganda drive be aware of what is going on there and speak out about the government's abuses the mass executions the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and and this I suppose is where Jake Daniels jumps to mind and the thought of Jake Daniels playing against Newcastle away in the FA Cup in their away jersey and the dire situation for LGBTI plus people. Sport must not be allowed to be used like this. Uh, what jumps out to me about the Newcastle situation is, and, and maybe this is just barefaced, I don't want to use the word lie, but uh, it's the word that jumped to my mind. Uh, barefaced statement of sorts. In November, Richard Masters, the Premier League chairman, he said that they had, quote, legally binding assurances that the Saudi state would not control the club and that, quote, if we find evidence to the contrary, we can remove the consortium as owners of the club in accordance with the rules. I mean, like, Richard, I, <laughs> I don't know what you're waiting for. It's the, the whole thing is absolutely appalling, and it's one of those things that shows that actually there is a need for an independent regulator in football. You can drive a, tr a drive a truck through the owners and directors test. And um, Richard Masters, I believe, was being disingenuous when he said all this. He, uh, he was backed into a corner. The reason they were stolen on the Saudis was nothing to do with the um, human rights element of it or a state owning a club. It was simply that uh, they, they were in dispute with Qatar and being sport with collateral damage with that. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I, and you know, Newcastle, the, the regime at Newcastle are absolutely barefaced and shameless about what they're doing. They they, they don't see that, that it's a problem. And uh, they regard Amnesty International as, um, you know, a nuisance. <laughs> I imagine 
regarding human rights as a nuisance. Mm. And um, and yet, you know, you think you think Jake, you know, if he wanted to go to the World Cup now in Qatar as a fan, then he's, he's got to be put he's, he's be put in a situation where you know it's which football fans of wherever the sexuality shouldn't be put into. You know, he's, you, you have to go to the World Cup's being played by a repre- in a, a place where there's a repressive regime that is anti anti the gay community. You know, and this is you know. It was bad enough when it was played in Russia four years ago. This, they, these might be the two most obscene World Cups we've had, you know. And um, mm. and, and I just think that there needs to be at some point a, a, a regulator that looks at football and looks at, at the way it's being run. I mean, you can only do that in your own country because yeah. FIFA, you know, are obviously absolutely appalling um, and, and sort things out. But would you trust a Tory government to regulate the game? I wouldn't personally. Not just at the moment, no. So uh, I suppose the third aspect then of our discussion was born out and played out at Wembley when Liverpool fans booed the anthem and uh, uh, Prince William was booed as well. And uh, there is that very pronounced disconnect, certainly uh, between Merseyside and uh, the state at large and the royal family. Jurgen Klopp was asked about it today, Tony, and I'll just play you what he had to say. Yeah, of course I had thoughts, but I think in these situations, Sam, it's always the best to ask the question, why does it happen? So I know our people that well that they wouldn't do if there's no reason for it. And I'm not here, maybe not long enough, for sure not long enough to understand the reason for it. It's for sure something historical. And that's that's probably a question you can answer much better than I could ever. I know a few fans from other clubs see that slightly different, um, but um, our, the majority of our supporters are wonderful people really um, smart and all these kind of things, understand, go through lows, go through highs, suffer together, all these kind of things. They wouldn't do it if there would not be a reason. That's what I, that's what I know. Um, and maybe we should ask this question. But of course, I realized it um, and it was um, not something I enjoyed or whatever. Um, but that's the answer. I mean, it's certainly a s- sad state of affairs, Tony. That's what you know, jumps out when you take a step back from it for a moment that this is how citizens of the country feel. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a sorry situation. And to Klopp's point, you've written brilliantly about this subject and you've said there is no single cause but a complex set of cultural and historical reasons. I mean, I would have thought really this would have kicked off perhaps in the 80s under Thatcher's government. And, you know, we've seen government papers where the... A phrase was used uh, of managed decline, as in let's not put money anywhere near Merseyside, said the Chancellor, because frankly, it's a waste of time. So can we just manage the place down into, well, I don't know what, chaos perhaps. So there's that. You have a prime minister who oversaw the Spectator article, uh, which talked about Liverpool fans wallowing in their victim status. And, uh, you know, I would have thought that, you know, that could be uh, the driving force. But you wrote about this and and pointed to even uh, 1965 FA Cup final that lots of Liverpool fans sang God Save Our Team rather than Laud the Monarch. So uh, you say in that instance, it's because of the peculiar nature of the place. So so Klopp there is saying, let's ask them why they did it. Uh, You're perfectly placed to to knit these various uh, reasons together. I'll tell you when the other of Liverpool started. The other of Liverpool started in 1847, when uh, when 
millions of economic, well, not economic, millions of starving Irish came into the city yeah. and changed the dynamic of it. You can trace it back. All the same tropes, all the same, all the same things were said in the newspapers. You can follow it through. I've written books about it. There are very good books about it. One by John Belchin called Irish Catholic and Scouse. And what you've got to remember is the actual word Scouse is an insult. It was aimed at the poorest immigrants in the city who were having to get, get the cheapest gruel from either uh, the, uh, you know, inexpensive food carts or soup kitchens. So, you know, this was only 100 years ago. The first time Scouse was mentioned in the Oxford English Dictionary was in 1947. This is a new dynamic. Right. Scouse is an insult, and which we appropriated as a point of pride. Right. And you know what? And it's, so if a Londoner goes, all right, all right, Scouse to me. I think that was an insult. I can call myself Scouse. He can't right. because it is a pejorative term that we've turned around. And when they sing, feed the Scousers, well, that tells you everything because deep in the folk memory of the, the British people is the famine and the poverty and the hunger that existed not only in Ireland, but was transported to Liverpool. And, you know, as I've said before, you know, on, on this show, where I come from, as an Irish nationalist MP until 1929, you know, we, we have long been outside the mainstream of British culture and politics, you know. So it, it, it's no surprise to me. I'm a committed anthem booer. Why, you know, with, it, it's, you know, Chelsea fans, other fans, you know, they sing Feed the Scousers, they love poverty. We boo privilege. You know, we boo the class system. We boo uh, the establishment that has treated us like crap over Hillsborough and which is, which is, and Hillsborough isn't a Liverpool thing. It's not a football thing. It's a public safety thing where the sad thing is some of the mistakes that were made at Hillsborough by the emergency services were still happening in 2017 at the Manchester Arena bombing. At Manchester Arena bombing, at least two of the victims died for the same similar reasons. So they died at Hillsborough and could have been saved. And if there was a proper rigorous investigation into it, and accountability and the change of the systems, perhaps those two people wouldn't have died. And it enrages me that this goes on. There's been a cover-up. People are angry about Liverpool fans booing the national anthem. And they're not angry about the mass changing of statements by the police to deflect the blame for their own failings to someone else. So I, I'm, you know, it's like I have no time for those who criticize us for booing. You know what? If you've had our experiences, you boo as well. And the other thing is, it's opened up hell's gates for the amount of abuse over Hillsborough and some of the families of the victims have been getting abuse on social media. It's appalling. It's allowed the worst elements in society to come out of the closet and express their, their almost inbuilt systemic hatred of people from Liverpool and and we are we are a, a, we are a despised city, certainly in England, and um, and we know it. And we're not going to shut up, though. No, I suspect not. Uh, I'm I'm sad to say we're out of time because we could talk about this subject for uh, another half hour very easily. We, we might do it some evening over the next couple of weeks if that's okay. But Tony Evans of the Independent, thanks, Tony. Speak to you soon.